0: Welcome to the VizWiz Podcast. I am Donna Garari, and in this podcast, I'll be joined by a team of researchers to explore two key questions. What are the visual challenges blind people encounter in their daily lives? And what are the technological advancements helping blind people to live more independently? We'll host conversations with people who are blind to learn about accessibility barriers they encounter as well as with industry developers and researchers to learn how they are shaping the present and future of visual interpretation technology. If you would like transcripts and other related content, you can learn more at viswiz.org. Check out the show notes for a link. Hello, and welcome to this panel discussion of the BizWiz Workshop. My name is Donna Garari, and I am an assistant professor and the lead of Image and Video Computing Research Group at the University of Colorado Boulder. I am so excited to have with us today three panelists who are going to bring a range of perspectives around the development of computer vision technologies to meet the interests and needs of people with vision impairments. First, we have Robin Christopherson to share the perspectives of people with vision impairments based on his personal experience, as well as his professional role at AbilityNet as the head of digital inclusion. We also have Saqib Sheikh to discuss the development of industry products that use computer vision to assist people with vision impairments. Sakeb so is an engineer manager at Microsoft, where he founded the mobile phone application called CAI, which uses AI to describe users' visual surroundings, such as recognizing objects, currency, and text. And finally, we have Marcus Rohrbach to speak with us about the cutting edge of computer vision research. Marcus is a research scientist at Meta AI Research and is most well-known for his work at the intersection of computer vision and natural language processing. Welcome all. It is a true pleasure to have each of you with us. And with introductions completed, I am excited to now dive into our panel discussion. So to begin our conversation today, could you please share about what has surprised you the most about progress that has taken place over the past 10 to 20 years around technologies that provide visual assistance to real-world users. Saqib, could you kick off this conversation?
1: Well, yeah. I think when you think over such a long time, like 10 or 20 years, it's funny to think how much has stayed the same and how much has come so far on. So it was maybe 2004, the first time I saw a video call. And for many blind people, that remains the way of getting remote sighted help is just making a remote video call. But of course, it's so much more available today. And I think it was about 10 years ago, the first time I saw both remote human assistance via an app, as well as the first glimpse of AI that could sort of describe what's in an image there 10 years ago was so basic. So it's interesting that on those time horizons, they are the, um, basics of what we have today. But my goodness, things have really, really come a long way. Automated image descriptions, yes, they leave a lot to be desired in terms of context, but they really are getting quite good to give an idea of what's in an image. And when it comes to human, remote human assistance um, with crowdsourcing solutions like Be My Eyes, suddenly, in addition to make that video call to your loved one, You've got this army of volunteers around the world who you can call on. So, yeah, technology has really built on those fundamentals, those
2: foundations, but come such a long way.
0: Great. Robin, would you mind sharing your thoughts?
2: Yeah, just following on from what Sakib was saying, I mean, he didn't mention the disability answer desk within Be My Eyes, the brilliant um, go-to way of um, getting access to uh, Microsoft's accessibility services, you know, with uh, a remote expert pair of eyes or indeed, you know, joining a a team uh, viewer session or, you know, quick assist session on your desktop and that sort of thing. So all of these technologies, as Sakib was saying, have been around for a while But certainly in the last sort of 10 years or so, I think the real power is that they're now with us all the time in the form of a smartphone, you know, scanners, desktop scanners and, you know, cameras and all these other kind of um, object recognition have been around for a lot longer, like Sakeb was saying. But the power of smartphones with us all the time, plus they have all these different sensors, you know, they have the camera uh, within them, but they also have extra sensors. And when your own senses don't work, you know, you want as many sensors going for you as possible. So GPS, accelerometer, compass, I use all of those in my phone all the time as a blind person, along with the camera and LiDAR and things like that. And, you know, just take the two Microsoft apps, my go-to apps for um, outdoor navigation and for kind of indoor object recognition or outdoor, um, seeing AI and Soundscape. They use all of those sensors as well. So I think, as Sakid was saying, it's the coming together of all of these disparate, you know, longer standing technologies, but in a format that is so much more democratizing. It's with you all the time. Um, it leverages all of those in really clever ways. It brings them all together, plus the crowdsourcing that um, Sakib was talking about as well. You know, so we're living in really exciting times. And as Sakib was saying, you know, there's still quite a way to go when it comes to replacing humans in the AI side of things. But I know that um, his team are working hard on that as well. So, yeah, we're living in exciting times.
0: Thank you, Robin. And Marcus, would you mind sharing your thoughts?
3: Yeah, I'm not sure I can add too much to it. I think that also a um, great summary to, uh, from, from Robin and Saki. Um, I still feel like that there was like this sort of, this an, an amazing, um, AI sort of revolution over the last, definitely over the last 10 to 20 years. Um, so in artificial intelligence and what we can do with machine learning. And I think it, I feel like uh, we are still sort of a uh, brink. I mean, there has been, of course, significant progress, but I think, the sort of the the visual assistance um to users is still sort of still i feel like the field is further than how far we are with uh with the ability to 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 assist users and i uh, um I might not know all the applications as well as as Robin and Saki, but I feel like there's sort of probably we're going to like in the next maybe five years or so I feel like there's still going to be a significant advancement just by the advancement the research field has made, which is not sort of yet maybe in, in sort of applications and um, especially not in, in assisting uh, real users.
0: Great, Marcus. That is a great segue into my next question, which is what do you see as the current limiting factor or barriers in developing better visual interpretation technologies? And so, Marcus, would you mind kicking off that conversation?
3: I mean, I, I think on the one hand, I think there's still sort of well we have sort of this, at least in the research community, and sort of the sort of uh, most of my expertise lies, there's sort of a lot of, of data, um, of, of general data out there, but sort of the amount of data which is there to, to train sort of assistive, multimodal assistive technologies is sort of somewhat limited still. So I think, of course, sort of the Vizvi's data set is, is a central sort of way to test things, but it's sort of from the size and the, and the breadth, is still sort of not as far as we would need to um, build really strong uh, applications and study really hard tasks.
0: Thank you. second, would you share your thoughts?
1: Yeah. As Marcus was saying, data is a huge one. Sometimes we call this like the data de- desert. There just isn't enough data um, relevant or applicable to people with disabilities. And that sort of comes to the bigger point, that we're, while we're working on these huge scale models, which... Try to generalize to everything. We've made huge strides there, but I also think on top of the data sets to support those huge models, we'd also need some way of personalizing for the individual, and acknowledging that every context and that context could be the kind of photo, like is it a social media post versus real world, etc etc, but also the person's environment, location, interests all the way through to what's of interest to this person right now. So I think we're gonna see advances on both sides. The the large scale machine learning, computer vision, which will try and create these large scale general models. And for that, we need the diverse dataset, which is representative of people with disabilities. But then I'm excited about personalizing that on the other side to be context aware and human aware of the individual.
0: Thank you. And Robin, would you share your thoughts about what are the current limiting factors in developing better visual visual assistance technologies?
2: Yeah, I'll start by echoing Marcus and Sakib because you know data is king, and it's really, really important that m- as much relevant uh, data sets are, are pulled together to feed the neural engines and the AI. Um, brilliant announcement by Apple recently that they have uh, they are including door detection in their next os so that um that last sort of five yards problem that you know a brilliant app like soundscape can get you to within spitting distance of the door that's not a good uh metaphor is it um within you know not quite touching distance of the door and then you um have trouble finding the door you know so often i'm feeling windows in a shop does this feel like a door if I just keep going a little bit longer you know you finally get to the door or somebody takes pity on you um so they've obviously put a lot of effort into the data sets around you know capturing what thousands of different doors look like probably and not only that but door handles they can recognize whether you know the kind of door handle that they're seeing on this side of the door does that imply it's a pull or a push or a turn and they're also grabbing the text from, um, you know, are there any signs on the door about push? Are there opening times or names of the um, store or whatever it might be next to the door as well? So all of that is built into uh, the Magnifier app in iOS, in iOS 16. So that's really, really good. And they must've had to put a lot of uh, time and effort into doing that. So that's absolutely brilliant. I think though the main barrier is just time and resources because there's so much potential here i was talking to Sakib offline a couple of weeks ago and he's got a big wish list for uh, seeing ai and it's just a question of time manpower and you know making sure that those can be brought to to the user as well so you know the teams that work on these probably are 10 times as big as they were 10 years ago but still you know that I think that the sky's the limit, really. And it's just about prioritizing it within these organizations that are doing good work.
0: Awesome. So that's actually a great segue into my next question, which is, could you describe how you envision technology will work in 10 years for interpreting visual information for real world users? And this can be anything from, you know, what will the skills be that the technology has to what is the form factor and how it will be delivered? And so Robin, would you mind sharing your thoughts first?
2: Yeah, I think, I mean, these guys, I'm sure have got a lot more to say about interpretation of images in a sensible way. So not only can you, you know, point your camera in camera mode and take a snap, or in video mode in light, you know, real time, and you know, capture the different objects that are in there and their trajectories and telemetry, you know, using lidar for example. But how do you then interpret that in really meaningful ways? And what are the key bits of information that you need? And that's about context. And I'm sure Sakib will want to talk about that. But um, you know, these days we have uh, AR type glasses for people with low vision that can put a, a sort of a white bold line around edges with using edge detection um, and around door frames and stuff like that to help them better interpret their environment for safety and navigation reasons and i could imagine that that would get more and more sophisticated so that whatever your particular preferences were for colors for high contrast for you know really highlighting different objects that could be done really well in real time with something that doesn't feel like you've got a great big bucket on your head or kind of big gaming rig or something so much more kind of discreet everyday wear And maybe if you've only got a little bit of vision left at the, you know, left hand side peripheral vision or something, maybe that that could be where the, the sort of central vision bit could be shifted to so that you get a lot more of an idea about, you know, your useful bit of vision is being used for the thing that's directly in front of you, that sort of thing. But yeah, I could definitely see AR or VR being used to give people the exact, uh, visual interpretation of the world that they want maybe if it's a really busy background behind the thing that you want to look at it would just green screen that background out you know a bit like blur or portrait mode or whatever to make it a much simpler for them to concentrate on the things that they need to see so yeah I think the sky's the limit as I say it's just a question of the imagination and resources of the uh, different teams that are kind of looking into this today
0: oh I'd be excited to take advantage of that kind of a vision if it came to be. Marcus, would you mind sharing your thoughts about where we're going to see technology go in the future?
3: Yes, yeah, so, so I think one one um, exciting avenue is that sort of I think visual interpretation becomes maybe much more useful for um, or important also for lots of applications which don't center out um, low vision users and visually impaired users in general, but also for for the general population that might. Spring much more investment in, in this, in this area. And, um, I mean, we've been seeing, um, several companies also investing in classes and augmented reality. And this, this being such a, a big market, if it's available for everyone, there will be much more investment and hopefully this will allow for technology to evolve much more that having classes, which can assist you, for example, or other variable devices can be much more powerful and sort of be sort of more continuously assisting everyone with with different abilities, with different disabilities to sort of have sort of a natural interaction with um, artificial intelligence and, of course, with other people.
0: Thank you. And Saqib, would you mind kicking off this final, this question?
1: Yeah, big picture. Really, if you imagine that there are a billion people with some form of disability, but then actually every human is different. So, I really imagine that the future of this technology is about becoming more aware of the human. So can we build systems that observe the world around us via sensors like the camera or LiDAR or anything else, or maybe network sources, and build up that model? And we started to do this with LiDAR and augmented reality with the Seeing Eye World Channel. But you build up an understanding of what's around you. But then you also build up an understanding of the human you're serving. And every human is different. And then you convey what they want to know, reactively or proactively, at the right time. And in this way, I want to be able to walk into a party and to be able to know where my friends are. I want to be able to join the end of a line. I want to be able to, I know, do so many things, which are currently challenging. But to remember that every human has their own challenges. But also has their own coping mechanisms, and for then AI to fill in all the little gaps, I kind of really, for me, I, I sometimes imagine it as a little, a little agent sitting on my shoulder, whispering in my ear. I really want that advocate for me, and I really think we can get there with advances in AI wearables and HCI. Thank
0: you. So I think that's a really interesting point about thinking about you know how do you personalize, but more generally how do you go about deciding what information should even get included when you try to interpret visual information? And so I would love for us just to talk a little bit about, you know, what do you think should be the process for deciding what information to include in a visual description? Because at some point, the AI developers are going to have to make that decision. <laughs> um, and so, Saqib, would you mind starting this conversation?
1: Ideally, you would put that in the user's control. Because if you're going to just generate one sentence, one caption per image, then it needs to be the right one. But if you could generate, perhaps start with a very verbose, rich caption, but then allow people to zoom into different things, like having either visual region of interest, but also perhaps a uh, topic region of, uh, or region, a topic of interest. Um, I think that would be really powerful, so that you can say, hey, this is a person standing here, but you could say, actually, you know what? I'm really interested about what's behind the person. The person just happens to have come into the photo and suddenly you'll get a whole different description. So I think that ability to zoom in and out, include and exclude different objects, regions will be very cool.
0: Great. Robin, can you share your thoughts about how we should go about deciding what information should be included within these visual descriptions.
2: Yeah, I mean, it is a difficult one. And like Sakib was saying, you know, it's really down to personal preference, also time constraints. You know, I think in Microsoft meetings, often they uh, say they're, you know, uh, give a brief description of themselves. And, you know, that's kind of time constraint. So context, as Sakib was saying about, you know, what being able to kind of interrogate other aspects of the picture on demand rather than giving you a great big long spiel about every kind of aspect of the picture um, is another kind of example of that. I think how seeing AI does it is really good in the for the kind of succinct summary. So, you know, 38-year-old man with brown hair and um, blue shirt, wearing glasses and looking happy, that sort of thing. You know, that's kind of a good, succinct description. But then there is this argument that says, you know, There are sensitive areas around body shape, for example, race, all this kind of thing. You know, have they got a facial disfigurement, that sort of thing, which other people who can see or have access to. So there is this argument that says, well, you know, just because blind people don't happen to be able to see that person, don't they still have a right to have access to that information? So, you know, at lower layers of information that you could ask for, maybe the fuller description would actually include body shape. And, you know, other striking features, um, because we kind of have a right to know. So this goes on to the kind of whole ethical thing. And there's certainly a lot of ethics around AI and, you know, the integrity of data sets and that sort of thing. And they certainly aren't well representative of minority groups. So yeah, there's kind of a whole discussion around that. But I, I just totally agree with Sakib that I think you need to be able to interrogate at different levels. And I think we do have a right to know. Thank you, and Marcus,
0: could you talk about what it's like from the computer vision perspective of deciding what information to include in a visual description?
3: yeah, I mean I think it's that's it's a very hard problem in in general to to decide on this and actually even like have models learn these different different variants and make them personalized, especially because it's sort of there's sort of, again, going back to what what you said earlier, there's sort of very limited data which allows to learn this sort of personalized aspects and learning how to personalize the different captions or different information you want to provide to a user. So if you would have this ability to to sort of, that the model actually can guess, especially if the model is over time with the same user, Ideally, it can guess what the user wants in a certain situation. And then only there, the user can maybe fine-tune of the additional information they want. If there is a question or was maybe different, maybe with pointing, there could be all kinds of forms of interaction beyond language, Just maybe language is the most natural one. And of course, it, it is actually very challenging to talk about body parts and race and, and gender just because that's very difficult for AI to, AI to handle to be not biased. And it's also a societal question. Um so I think there has to be also um just a discussion, the society, what is what's the right thing to do there. I think it, it shouldn't be the AI alone deciding that or or developers deciding that. Probably like a society thing. And and maybe that there's also a localized society thing. So Maybe in some societies, people are more open to that, and other societies are less open to certain things.
0: Thank you. So slightly switching gears, I would like to now talk about something we've already addressed in this discussion, which is the issue of how do you go about um, creating these large-scale data sets that typically we need to develop visual assistance technologies. And so we know that these kinds of data sets are very, like they're the foundation for us to evaluate computer vision models, but also often to even train models. And so I was hoping to hear um, from each of you about your expectations about how such data sets can be built responsibly and any experience that you have in building such data sets. And so, maybe Marcus, would you mind starting and sharing some of your perspectives as someone who develops the cutting edge of computer vision technologies
3: yeah i think I think it's it's a difficult difficult question i mean all the all the points you mentioned are, are hard. I think one thing we looked at is sort of specific tasks which might be technology wise not mature yet, and sort of so sort of focus down on them. Sort of one, one example we did, we focused on the sort of reading scene text in the image. So we sort of focused on, on the data set and sort of let's want focus on, on a subset, uh, which is maybe on the one hand a bit disappointing, but on the other hand allows to collect a reasonable size data set without cutting like millions or billions of data points, which, which is probably in many cases infeasible. I don't have a good answer about sort of the, um, what is the best way to get diversity? I mean, ideally, you get all these diverse sources of data with respect to image, with respect to users, but it's easier said than, than actually done. Um, because typically lots of data is not available. Lots of users are not, um, maybe, uh, don't want to share the information or don't, are basically not maybe connected to phones or internet as well as as other parts of the the society. But it's really difficult difficult to actually do this like really fair. And I think in part, it will always be, there will be always some imbalance in the data. So the other side is, I think there has to be some algorithmic side, which takes into account that we won't have completely balanced data. That won't just happen. There will be always bias. There will be always sort of, not capturing everything the same way. That's just how, how the world is. So, so even if, if we would capture the entire world, I think we'd still not be fair because there's, there's just smaller populations and larger populations. And we have to just have AI or whatever technology we're using, be aware of that and, and design design accordingly, which is, of course, very hard. And, and I think it's sort of a part of active active research.
0: Thank you. Saket, would you share your thoughts?
1: Sure. So I, I think of this again, as before, on two fronts, the big data and the little data. So we're working with our responsible AI team at Microsoft to see seeing AI processes, millions of images every year, mostly taken by people who are blind, or certainly you know requested by people who are blind. And so we have a diverse variety of photos coming through the system. We don't keep any of them today for privacy reasons, because we don't know that the people submitting the photos don't know what's in them at the point of submission, etc. So we're working with a responsible AI team to think, what is the best way to allow users to opt in with meaningful consent? And what does that mean down the road if something were to change or the change of their mind or all these interesting questions around privacy or PII. And then that's just for gathering a data set. But then of course, you need to be able to process that and either get it labeled or use supervised or semi-supervised techniques where you don't need so much labeling. So that all of that is actively being investigated so that, you know, these millions of photos, could we use them to further improve the state of the art for people who are blind? So that's on the big data, But then, as I said before, at the end of the day, we're all humans, we're all individuals. Um, Someone with three dogs said, I'd love to know in which photos was which dog. And I'm like, at that point, really, that comes down to the user experience and allowing someone who's blind to be doing the teaching, not only the consuming of the model, but the creation of the model. So we're also working with the researchers on that. So how do you... Um, how do you get someone who can't see an object to teach an object such that that gets included in the descriptions because it's something they're interested in?
0: Thank you. And Robin, can you share, share your thoughts about how to go about building data sets responsibly?
2: Yeah. Um, first of all, I want to very briefly go back to what Marcus was saying a while ago about um, ideally the model or the machine learning would would um, learn how much information you want And kind of curate the experience to you and I think that's a a brilliant idea in an ideal world you know it would kind of learn your preferences and that sort of thing I do feel like we've got a long way to go from where we are today if for example the stock responses within the Apple Watch uh iMessages app you know so someone sends you a message and then you can flick down to just below the kind of edit box to the stock replies and there are things like um be right back or um I can't think of them. They're just the worst responses ever. And I've never, ever tapped on one. And, you know, they, it doesn't learn at all from the fact that I might bring up the keyboard and find the emoji and give them a thumbs up or something like that. They just haven't changed at all. Or if they have, then they're all so bad as, you know, I haven't kind of noticed that they have. So yeah, I think um, there's a lot of scope for a, a personalized experience in the level of information, the sort of data you get. Um, served up by AI. But it feels like we're in the early stages there, or at least that those particular implementations aren't particularly good. But going back to the question in in hand, I agree with the guys, you know, it's all about the data set. And I was working with City University in London for their Orbit project, nothing to do with the Braille display, which they created an app uh, with some really good instructions about um, getting Uh, blind and visually impaired people to take pictures of the everyday products, not just VI related products like their white cane or their dog's harness or braille display or something, but everyday stuff that they need to find like their keys and, you know, whatever they need to find their shoes, but taken from the perspective of somebody who's, you know, not, who hasn't got any vision so the the lighting might not be great you know maybe they're taking them in, in taking photographs of these objects if they've managed to find them in the locations where they you know potentially will have left them in will leave them in future so the context you know helps with the model and that sort of thing and that comes back to what sakkib was saying about you know personalization the small data which will make it you know very specific to that individual so there's the larger data set about Making sure that the model includes more information about the sort of objects that people with a vision impairment need to find or, or kind of identify, but also taken by them, you know, in the way that maybe the lighting isn't as good as it would be in the other data sets that have been curated or kind of compiled from more conventional means. But then the small data would be, these are my very specific keys, or this is my very specific favorite mug or something. And I'd love there to be a training channel In seeing AI, I'm sure that's the kind of thing that, that, you know, Saki and his team are talking about, or whatever it might be, whatever the vehicle would be to kind of help with augment that data set. Because this Orbit project would be hundreds of, uh, you know, users and uh, people involved. Whereas, as Saki was saying, you know, for seeing AI, it's just on another, you know, scale altogether. Thank you.
0: And so now coming to our final question, the premise of these kinds of conversations we're trying to put together is that we believe it really takes a collaboration between researchers, industry developers, and blind technology advocates to advance products and services that are available for visual interpretation purposes. And so for our final question, what I'd love to hear from each of you is your thoughts on what do you find works well versus does not work well in collaborations or conversations you've had, and also just sharing a little bit about any kind of experiences you've had collaborating with people of other minds, whether it's researchers, industry developers, or blind technology advocates. And so I would love uh, for a second to start us off with this conversation.
1: Yeah, I think the partnerships really are key. For me, that starts, you know, internally, our whole project, I think of as a conversation between the blindness community and the researchers at Microsoft and in academia. So, you know, we're looking at what are the daily challenges that we hear about from the people we talk to in the community, uh, whether that be at conferences when conferences were a thing, or by email, or the feedback channels, or so forth, blogs, podcasts, all the way through to user research studies. And on the other side, then talking to the scientists at Microsoft and Microsoft Research and our computer vision teams and saying, "You know what's in your bag of tricks that we could use to improve people's lives and then Microsoft Research also does those academic partnerships, for example, Robin mentioned the orbit project with university london University of London, and then also Dana, you would know the uh, Ut Austin collaboration we did on image captioning, and there's many more besides that. Thank you,
0: Marcus. Would you share your thoughts?
3: Yeah, I think um, I think my focus so far has been mainly on, on the research side, but we've been I've been talking to visual impaired users um, both within in the company and outside, and also um, with sort of the accessibility team. What 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 they are thinking of? on on what sort of what's sort of their roadmap but where they see issues I think I think that's sort of very important to sort of sort of get the context and understand sort of some some of the sort of context out there. I think there's also room sometimes for sort of thinking of things which maybe users might not be thinking of at the current stage sort of there might be some aspects which sort of I always pick this example of the mobile phone i mean I didn't. Need a mobile phone or like a smartphone when it didn't exist. So I think, um, sort of, I think there's sometimes maybe some creative. I wouldn't have said, I would have probably said, I mean, me personally, I, I would not need a smartphone, but now I'm using it all day, um, for the, all the different tasks. So I think there's sort of sometimes maybe some creativity which goes sort of like if you look like 10 years in the future. Which maybe users might not even, sort of, can even not even think of right now. So I think there's sort of these two ways. If we think about those sort of products and and things which sort of in the near future, I think it's it's very valuable. Then, but then sort of maybe for some technology to evolve, we have to maybe go, go beyond sort of what individual users think.
0: Thank you, and Robin, would you finish us off with your thoughts?
2: Yeah. I mean, I'm ashamed to say that, you know, myself and AbilityNet more generally aren't kind of actively involved in setting the agenda of the future of products and AI and that sort of thing. We endeavour to know about what's out there and what's potentially around the corner but not to kind of set the agenda. So yeah we're, we're kind of kept busy because we're a pan-disability organisation so you know knowing about what's out there, how the different technologies work together if you've got more than one disability for example is yeah kind of a full-time effort for us. Having said that though you know when you've got a lot of con- connections in different organisations as we have, you know I definitely take the opportunity to bend Saqib's for example or to talk to Christopher Pack know at Google or whoever it might be um, across different organisations to kind of pick their brains and kind of enthusiastically talk about where things might be going. So yeah, I think the more enthusiasts we have out there, the more you know people can start to get really excited about the future. And hopefully, the more those efforts will be prioritized with budget resources, you know, senior buy-in to make sure that, you know, organizations like Microsoft and others really do, you know, carry on doing great things going forward. Thank you.
0: Well, we are now at the end of our panel. So I just want to thank each of you for making the time to share your thoughts. This has been a truly fantastic conversation.